windows just to let a little air come through here. That would be, that would be great. So I want to talk about solstice and renewal, if I can, since it's the uh, just a few days before our, the winter solstice and the longest night and the shortest day. And also we have become, begun um, the rather, I think, delicious and long-awaited rainy season. And the plants and the animals and the streams and everything that lives in this particular ecosystem that we're a part of is really grateful to have the rains come back. They were kind of thirsty after six or eight months of waiting. Thomas Merton, the wonderful Christian mystic contemplative, talks about going out in the rain says, the rain that I'm in is not like the rain of the cities. It fills the woods with an immense and confused sound and covers the roofs of my cabin with insistent rhythms. And I listen because it reminds me again and again that the whole world runs by rhythms I have not yet learned to recognize, rhythms that are not those of the merchant or the engineer. Think of it, all that speech pouring down, selling nothing, <laughs> judging nobody, drenching the thick mulch, soaking the trees, filling the gullies and streams with water, washing out all the places and cleaning the hillsides. What a thing it is to sit cherished by this wonderful, perfectly innocent speech, the most comforting speech in the world, the talk that the rain makes across the ridges and hollows and watercourses. Nobody's started it. Nobody's going to stop it. It will talk as long as it wants, this rain. And as long as it talks, I will sit and listen. And so the rainy season was in the tr traditional Buddhist monasteries, places where I trained. Um, it was an important contemplative time. Everyone would stop traveling or other activities and do the three-month rainy season retreat where we would turn our attention more fully than ever to a kind of deep stillness and inner listening. And even to sit for 15 minutes, as we just did, is a kind of a retreat. I mean, in our wild multitasking culture, just to stop, other than when you're, you know, praying to fall asleep, you know, or something like that, is a kind of remarkable thing. We don't do it. I mean, and, you know, you see people walking down the street texting as they go, right? Also talking on the... It used to be that somebody who talked out loud on the street looked pretty crazy, right? But now everybody does it, right? They've got their little earpiece and whatever. Um, we don't have much silence and stillness. And to sit is to allow ourselves to touch back into the web, the vast silence that surrounds us all the time and holds us and holds the world and the cosmos. 
So the rains are a time to turn inward, as is the solstice, quite naturally. Um, I think it was Aldous Huxley who said, an idolatrous religion is one that substitutes progress for eternity. <laughs> and that the idea of time, and we're going to get somewhere else, takes us out of the eternal present, out of the mystery of the turning of the seasons and the world and the breath and the body and the life we've been born into. Now, of course, some of you may be frightened because the world will be ending on the solstice according to the Mayan long count calendar. So you don't have to worry about your stock portfolios, your unpaid taxes, or your alimony, or whatever it is, any longer, right? Um, I was told as I began, friend who came here, Remind me that tonight is Rumi's wedding night. And Rumi's wedding night is the name for the night that Rumi died. It's the night that Rumi went to meet his beloved. So it's called Rumi's wedding night. Doesn't that turn it around a little bit for you, huh? And so we worried the world is going to end, but there's an old story, a very ancient story. It might be African or it might be Mongolian, or it might be Mayan. But in this story, there's an old woman that sits at the mouth of a cave. And in the cave, there's a great fire and a huge cauldron on the fire. And periodically, she stirs the pot, which is the pot that has all the things of life, where this woman is the... Is the goddess in many different incarnations who gives birth to and tends the creation of the world. And she has two tasks. She stirs the pot of the world. You're in it, by the way. You've been stirred lately. I know you have. Face it. And you will be further. And she also knits the cloak that covers the universe. And so she sits in her chair, rocks back and forth. And in the cloak, she weaves in porcupine quills and you know, feathers from exotic birds and, and dreams and, you know, the fabric of silkworms and amazing things woven into this quilt. And when she finishes this weaving, this knitting, then the world will be covered by this cloak and it will come to an end. But sitting next to her is an old black dog. You know that black dog. It's been here since the beginning of time. And every once in a while, the woman has, the old woman has to get up and go and stir the pot, keep you on your toes, right? And when she goes to stir the pot, she wakes up the black dog, <laughs> who goes over and grabs the knitting cloak that she's been working on and chews it and pulls it and undoes what she's just woven. So she starts, sits back down and she has to start again where she left off. And that's why the world can't end. <laughs> and if you don't believe that, talk to a Mayan. They'll tell you. But there is something profound about the fact that what ends is also a beginning. And the world pushes to renew itself even as it dies, something new is always born. That's why you can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in spring, and 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for stray kittens holding them to their 
scrawny chests. And painters going blind paint more and composers going deaf write great symphonies. As we give ourselves to life, it floods through us. It wants to renew itself. So here we are, taken birth, human incarnation, 101, right? But you, get, you start over and over each time. It's, you kind of wish you'd, you know, could move to 102 or something like that, but you forget a lot of what you might have learned in, if you believe in another incarnation. But anyway, here you are. You're in this strange human body with the tainted glory, to use Oscar Wilde's phrase, of humanity. And we're going into the darkest time of the year, and there are two kinds of darkness. There's the fertile darkness, that is the pregnant void, the darkness out of which all things arise and are born. Um, that's the darkness that contains the potential of creation. And you know, when, when the physicists talk about outer space and talk about if they can even find some area that doesn't have any physical matter in it, although it's still filled with the, you know, x-rays and gamma rays and other, all those other things that are passing through it, there's an enormous energy, an enormous energy in the vacuum. It's like it just wants to burst forth. So there's the fertile, pregnant darkness that gives birth to all things, the, the background. Yeah, they call it dark matter, you know, that kind of thing, 98% or 90, or 88% or whatever it is. They haven't figured that out. Um, dark energy. It's kind of cool. And then there's the other kind of darkness, which is the darkness of blindness in an unhealthy way, the unseeing, the unconscious darkness. And to awaken, to live in a conscious way, we both have to awaken to what's light and luminous, but we also have to awaken to darkness. And it's not particularly easy. Uh, one of the Hindu sages, he writes, go ahead, light your candles, candle time, solstice, burn your incense, ring your bells, call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge, and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So anybody who's ever meditated for a little while understands this in a kind of personal and intimate way. You sit, ah, I'm going to be joyful, peaceful, filled with light. And then Mara and your own personal demons appear as well. Yes, you have beautiful light, but also you have your worries and anxieties, your physical pains, your unfinished business and grief, your loneliness and boredom, your fears and aversions, your aggression, your death, all those things come visit you. So there you are having a nice meditation, ha, huh? right? <laughs> and there are stages in the meditation manuals where I train that are called the stages of terror, the stages of facing your death. So it's not like it's a mistake, it's looking at human incarnation. And it's not like somebody else has the problem. You've been born with this human dilemma of joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame and um, longing and love and violence as well. Alexander Solzhenitsyn.
who says, if only it were all so simple, if only it were necessary just to separate, let's see, how does he start that? One second. I'm trying to do it by memory, but so. He says, if only there were evil people out there insidiously committing evil deeds and it were just simple, we could separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So you sit and if you're honorable in your meditation, you find everything in there because you are part of the cosmos and part of humanity with its joys and its terrors. And then you open your eyes to this world. Plato said, only the dead know the end of war. So there's continuing warfare and racism and injustice and cruelty. There's also waterfalls and flamingos and mangoes and chocolate, you know. Um, I mean, it's wild. And to awaken is to sense this mystery of it all. And here we are, this week in the DRC, the Democratic Republic. I like that they've got both parties in their name. The Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the worst killing fields probably since World War II. Um, the number of children who are killed, the number of women who are being raped, the number of young people who are being impressed into the army. It, 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 and it goes on week after week and year after year. And it's just one place on the planet. It's one of the most dire. And we don't really pay attention to it, but there it is. And it's us as humans. And it's a wealthy, fertile, beautiful land. Or this week, and sort of this is the build-up, you wonder why I'm talking about this stuff, is I want to talk about Connecticut and Sandy Hook and the gutting down of innocence, which is almost unbelievable. It takes your breath away. Um, unbearable, senseless carnage. Um, and it's there, so we see it and feel it. We don't see it when it happens in a village in the Congo or when it happens to girls in r rural you know, Afghanistan or someplace. But here it was. It's made visible to us in some terrible, terrible way, almost unbearable. And so we have a task if we are to live honorably, if we are to live an awake life. The first task, perhaps two, is to not let the outer ignorant darkness, that kind of darkness, take over your heart to not let that come in and poison you. But the second task, which is equally important, is to not avert your gaze. To not let yourself turn away because you can't bear it. So Ramdas was teaching a class, dear friend Ramdas, author of Be Here Now in the 60s and so forth, in Oakland couple decades ago on service as a path to awakening the heart. And after some weeks of the class talking about how you paid attention to the people around you and how you offered things and what was going on in you as you, as you served the world, 
woman raised her hand and said, I've been really learning something in this class. He said, would you tell your story? So she said, every day I'm on my way to work for the last year, there's a homeless guy who sits near the um, BART station and I put money in his cup. He's just become one of my people. And I, you know, just as I pay my money to get on BART, I offer him something every morning and it feels very good to do it. But after our classes, I realized that I'd never really looked at him. I've never really looked him in the eye. And so I started to pay attention as I did it, and I went to give him the money. And I realized I was afraid to look him in the eye. And then I understood why I was afraid to look him in the eye. Because she said, if I really looked at him, I was afraid that he would be moved to my living room couch for the rest of the year if I really looked him in the eye. And I didn't know what to do with that. You understand? So it's neither to let the violence and the ignorance of that kind of darkness take over your heart so you drown in it, nor is it to avert your gaze. Now, the Buddha teaches that we should look not just at the results, but at causes and conditions. And in Connecticut, what happened is the result of a lot of causes and conditions. How do we deal with mental illness in this culture? And I know, you know, we use medication, but too quick sometimes, don't even talk to people. And I also know and somebody in my extended family who was put on medita medication, a relatively young person who committed suicide shortly after because they weren't being tracked for their antidepressant. And it has that other effect. There's all this weird stuff. And now we don't talk to people. We just medicate them in some way or other. And our prisons are actually our default mental hospitals. Mental hospitals are closed. Imagine being, you know, having mental illness and then being stuck in a prison. What kind of civilization? You know, um, or you can talk about somebody shooting people as a kind of twisted attempt to get attention. The old adage, it's better to be wanted by the police than not wanted at all, right? Or there's weird drugs like bath salts and things that are around. But also there's the celebration of the pornography of violence in this culture. The video games. I mean, just go to a, go to watch the new James Bond movie, right? And watch all the trailers because it's the action movie trailers you get, and it's like half an hour of people shooting one another up and blowing them, blowing things up, and killing one another. What fun! And not only that, we export it. So as a, I remember starting to travel around, you know, in different countries, 20, 30, 40 years ago, American movies, Rambo was the big thing in Mongolia or Indonesia or Africa or things like that. That's real America. I mean, come on. We do this. And then on top of the celebration of violence is our hyper-individualistic cowboy frontier man archetype, right? That you're going to do it all yourself. But the cow forget that the cowboy, you know, that his gun was actually made by somebody else somewhere. Um, and so was his axe and his pump handle and, you know, the candle or kerosene lamp. The idea that you're not connected with other people is crazy. And yet we live this kind of archetype. 
will be self-sufficient and then the others, the communists or the UN's black helicopters or the Muslims or the immigrants, somebody's not going to get us. We'll protect ourselves somehow. And we've, we're a warlike nation. If you look at our history the last century plus, we've almost not been at peace. We've been at one war after another. Now we're doing two at once. See, we're multitasking. And we're the largest weapons exporter on the face of the earth. We're headed into the solstice, by the way. You want to talk about darkness, we're going through it for a moment. Um, because it's in your heart. You have Connecticut there. And it's not just those children, but it's the causes and conditions that we as a society have to at least not turn away from. We have the largest military budget, more than the next 10 military budgets of all other countries in the world. We, are, we supply $100 billion of killing machines every year to other parts of the world, and then we get afraid that we're not so safe. Funny. And it's crazy. As John Stewart said, one failed attempt at a shoe bomb and we all have to take our shoes off. 31 school shootings since Columbine and no change in our gun laws. So that's the reptilian brain, in case you hadn't noticed. There's the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain and then there's some higher functioning. But we can trigger the fear in each other, the survival fear, very easily. And we get, you know, fearful and fundamentalist in all these kinds of ways um, very, very easily. So what are we to do? Mourn, yes, weep. But also stand up for a different world. Not just mourn and weep. Martin Luther King, Jr. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering, he said after the church was bombed. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your conscience that we will win yours as well. So the violence and the misunderstanding has to be met with some equal force. And it's really the force of love and a kind of courage that's a different part of who we are, but an equally important and valuable and genuine human part. Now one of the good things I can say tonight. I was reading Steven Pinker's book. Some of you may know it, The Better Angels of Our Nature. He's anthropologist, historian, philosopher. It's brilliant. And, you know, Bill Gates says, maybe the most important book I've ever read. Wall Street Journal calls it masterly, but so also does MSNBC, Fox. I mean, it's like all across the spectrum. And what his thesis is, that the world is actually getting better. That if you look over the last four or five centuries, that the kind of global changes are, there's less violence, um, there is a gradual abolishment of capital punishment in many parts of the world, 
a gradual abolishment of slavery, a gradual abolishment of despotism. There is um, an understanding that even though it still happens, genocide is wrong. Um, there is an increase in civil rights, an increase in women's rights and the way women are treated, and gay rights and the rights of children. There isn't so much child labor anymore, although there is some. Um, there is, uh, he goes on and on. By various different measures and markers, even though we're pretty damn uncivilized, we're getting better. Um, that's a really important thing to say at this time. Now, just so it doesn't go to your head, um, at the University of Chicago, um, um, Imdal Ben Ami Bartal and Jean Desity did a, uh, a study of rats, um, and they were giving them chocolate chips. These were really the happy rats. Um, but they had a captive rat in a cage next to a, un, a free rat, and um, they could hear the distress calls of the captive rat. Um, and the free rat learned with greater time how to open the cage for the captive rat, even if it wasn't getting any reward. And not only that, it saved a chocolate chip or two for that rat. It did. Okay, so it doesn't go to your head, right? So built into Darwin, and if you read Darwin, Darwin did a whole book on compassion and interdependence. He didn't just talk about the survival of this, you know, the fittest, but he did a whole thing about interdependence that we don't read about. We only read cowboy Dar Darwin, but there's a whole other part of Darwin that's really worthy of looking at. It's not just the survival of the fittest, it's the survival of those who collaborate. It's the web of interdependence. It's life as a field that we are a part of. Now the thing that's true is that this wisdom that's not the reptilian brain, or maybe even the mammalian brain, although the rats seem to have a pretty, you know, they have, they got both sides like we do. Um, not only is it natural to us in some way, but also it can be reminded, awakened, trained, supported. The capacity that we have not just to act from the impulses of fear and violence and prejudice and racism and those things, those are one part of our, one part of our consciousness and brain. We actually don't have to follow them. And the Buddha said, he said, if it were not possible to train you to do this, I wouldn't teach. But just because it is possible for us, so I offer these practices. How to incline the mind. Others will, will be cruel, we shall not be cruel, thus we will incline the mind. Others will kill living beings, we will not kill living beings, thus we will incline the mind. Others will take what doesn't belong to them, we will abstain from taking what belongs to them, thus we will incline the mind. Others will speak maliciously and untruthfully. We will speak kindly and truthfully, thus we will incline the mind. Others will be envious. We will not be envious, thus we will incline the mind. Others will be arrogant. We will not. 
thus will incline the mind. Others will be harsh without compassion. We shall establish compassion, thus we should incline the mind. Others will lack wisdom. We shall cultivate wisdom, thus we shall incline the mind. And it's a reminder for us as a humanity that this is also our birthright. This is also possible. Now in the ancient stories, in the forests of India of that time, when the Buddha, as the story is told, gave instructions to monks and nuns of how to quiet their mind and develop a sense of mindful awareness and an inner sense of freedom, he sent them off into the forests and jungles to meditate. And in this particular occasion, a group of them came running back because the forest that they were sent into was filled with wild animals and strange sounds of ghosts and spirits. And they said, we're terrified. We can't practice there. Help us. And he said, I'll give you a protection that will work in the forests of the wild animals, which are mostly the wild animals in your own mind, by the way, just to get this clear. Um, and the, the spirits. And that was the first occasion in these teachings anyway, when he offered the systematic instruction on loving-kindness meditation, which we'll do later this evening. He said, if you can learn to dwell in your heart, offering love to all beings, that will be a protection no matter where you go. People will sense it and love you more. You know, your health will be better. Your mind will be quieter. You'll fall asleep easily. You'll awaken contented. Your children will be happier. Elephants will bow as you go by. There's a whole long list of <laughs> all this. It's called unconditional friendliness. And it's really a beautiful teaching and practice. And you kind of, as most of you know, who've done the loving-kindness meditation, um, you start very simply by awakening the sense, the wishing, well-wishing for yourself and others. And then you extend it to all living beings, weak or strong, young or old, um, born or yet to be born, um, long or short, no legs, two legs, many legs, four legs, however, whatever form, far and near. And you begin to extend the friendliness of your heart. Now the thing is that love, which is so mysterious, it's like gravity, it's the, I think it's because we were all together in the singularity, the physicists call it. That's where you used to live 13.6 billion years ago today, as Wes would say, right? Um, and then you exploded into, you know, stars, galaxies, planets, 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth was a ball of molten stone, and now it can sing opera, as Brian Swim likes to say. That love is, is like gravity, cosmic allurement. It's that uh, sense that we actually all belong to one another. And when we feel it, when we open ourselves to it, we know that this is true. And we've all fallen in love, and we've all had our days of love. Um, and we all have known what it's like to gaze with the eyes 
of love upon another or creation. Or as the Buddha said, to hold another being the way a mother holds her most beloved child. But when love, which is called one of the four states of the awakened heart, this is the developed heart and mind that we have a capacity for, when love is awakened, it also changes flavor. When love meets pain and suffering, it turns into compassion. Because you can't wish, oh, sweet, happy love when someone's child has just died. You can't love sweet, happy love when somebody is in great fear and pain and suffering. And so instead, that touch of love in the place of sorrow transforms it into the heart of compassion. And it's not only the children in Connecticut whose names are listed here, six years old, seven years old, six years old, Grace and Jesse and Catherine and Madeline and Dylan and Lauren and Noah and Benjamin. It's not only those children, but it's all the children who are really all our children. And especially it's all the children who are hungry or unprotected or sick, whose parents can't take care of them, whose parents can't protect them which there are. And so when the door of compassion opens, it's not just for one being, but it starts to sense and feel the compassion for life. But love also can meet beauty and turn into joy, mudita, the joy of being part of this amazing creation. Alice Walker She writes, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. People think pleasing God is all God care about, but any fool living in the world can see it's always trying to please us back. And so it's also important, just as there's tragedy, that there is also beauty and that you don't want to deny joy or happiness. To deny your happiness is to lessen the importance of the deprivation of others. And it doesn't help for you not to feel the happiness that's given to you and then to use it to offer it. It's like Wes Nisker, colleague, friend, who went to talk to Gary Snyder, interview him a few months ago. Um, Gary's 84 and this extraordinary poet, environmentalist, Pulitzer Prize winner, who's been doing the environmental consciousness raising for half a century, one of the, our great teachers in that way. And he said, Gary, he started the interview, you know, with global warming and environmental destruction and loss of species and so forth, what do you say as one of our elders? You know, what's the, what do you say to people? How do you advise us? And he looked and he said, first thing he said is, don't feel guilty. Said that doesn't help. He said, if you're going to save it, it's not going to be saved out of your guilt. Love it. Walk in it. You know, breathe it. Touch it. You know, see its flowers. Love a tree. Find a place that, that matters to you. Find the joy in life and let that love be what inspires you to save what you can.
And the same for meditation. It's not meant to be a grim duty, although it has its tough parts, because you sit with yourself. I like nothing more in the world than just listening, sitting on my ass, being happy, doing nothing. And it's not my fault that I have this attitude, writes Laurie Chapman, because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much, but if you could sit on this baby for two minutes, you'd realize that getting off this ass would be a crime against nature. So there's love, and there is. There's compassion, oceans of it, because there's so much sorrow. But there's also almost unbearable beauty. And it keeps being reborn. And you can't deny that either. And then there's the deep peace that comes to the heart when we rest and see the magnificence of this dance we're born into. And when we come still, our stillness becomes like a mirror for those around us to see. As Yeats says, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may live to see their own, that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. That that too is a gift of the awakened heart, just to be still and see the magnificence of it as it is. So these are the dimensions of the awakened heart. And the gift is that with training, it's possible to do this. So my friend and colleague and teacher Mahagosananda, who was the, the Gandhi of Cambodia, we lived in this forest monastery doing loving-kindness meditation over and over and over again. And then he built these temples in the refugee camps and did 15 years of walking people on foot through the killing fields back to their villages, chanting loving-kindness over and over, saying you can't return home without every step offering a prayer of love to reclaim the land that you've lived on from this war. Only then will you feel that you're home. And it's because he trained to do it, he actually could carry it. It was an amazing thing to see. Dina Metzger, the poet, activist friend, she says, Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep, and we will have rain, and we will begin again. And we do. We start over and over and over again. And it is possible to do this for you. And we all hold in some way this imagination, whether it's Nelson Mandela walking out of prison 27 years in Robben Island with so much magnanimity and graciousness, or Aung San Suu Kyi, or whoever it is that you, you carry, we all know it. We know it's a human possibility. So Dante, you remember him, the author of the Divine Comedy, was standing near the Ponte Vecchio, the bridge that crosses the Arno River in Florence. It was about 1285 or 1290, just before 1300. And Dante saw Beatrice, Beatrice, standing on the bridge. He was a young man, she even younger, and that vision contained the whole of eternity for him. Dante didn't speak to her and saw her very little, and then Beatrice died, carried off by the plague. Dante was stricken with the loss of his vision 
for she was the connection between his soul and heaven itself. You know what it's like to fall in love. 650 years later, during World War II, the Americans were chasing the German army up the Italian peninsula. The Germans were blowing up everything of aid to the progression of the American army, including the bridges across all the rivers. But no one wanted to blow up the Ponte Vecchio because Beatrice, Beatrice, had stood on it and Dante had written about her. So the German commandant made radio contact with the Americans and in plain language said they would leave the Ponte Vecchio intact if the Americans would promise not to use it. <laughs> and the promise held. The bridge was not blown up and not one American soldier or piece of equipment went across it. We're such hard-bitten people that we need hard-bitten proof of things, and this is the most hard-bitten fact of love that I know to present to you. The bridge was spared in a modern, ruthless war because Beatrice had stood upon it. <laughs> so we also carry this in us, each one of us, in this amazing way. O oh, nobly born, says the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. And the Dharma, which is the word that means truth, teachings, all these kind of things, is really the Dharma of the heart. And the point isn't to perfect yourself. You've tried that, didn't work, right? Therapy, gym, whatever. The point is to perfect your love. And it's all kinds. It's individual and global and, oh, this is Pablo Neruda, one of his love sonnets. When I die, I want your hands on my eyes. I want the light and wheat of your beloved hands to pass their freshness over me once more. I want to feel the softness that changed my destiny. What a boyfriend, huh? William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is a plea of the flatterer, the scoundrel, and the hypocrite. So in the end, there aren't really very many questions when you come to the end of life. You know what matters? Did I love well? Was I forgiving, gracious, open-hearted? If you didn't love well, what was it for? Maybe did I live fully, too? Did I give myself to life? There's a beautiful poem called, In the Evening You Will Be Examined on Love. It's the first line of it. The great blue book in the sky. So a story to read you that some of you know. <clears throat> it was... Thursday, Christmas, our family had spent the days before the holiday in San Francisco with my husband's parents, but in order for us to be back at work in Los Angeles, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles to Southern California on Christmas Day. It was normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids, it can be a 14-hour endurance test. When we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City, a little metropolis made up of six gas stations and a diner, and it was into that one diner that the four of us trooped, road-weary and saddle-sore. As I sat Eric, our one-year-old, in a high chair, I looked around the room. 
The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family and ours were the only children. Everyone else was busy eating, talking quietly, aware perhaps that we were all somehow out of place on this special day. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee, Hi there! Two words he thought were one. Hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the metal high chair tray. His face alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless baby grin. He wriggled and chirped, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes couldn't take it all in at once. A tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, and worn, baggy pants, a spindly body, toes that poked out of old, old shoes, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's, hair uncombed, unwashed, whiskers too short to be called a beard. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled, and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and oh, poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there. Every call was echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and several people sitting near us ahemmed out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and he pulverized it on the tray. I thought, why me under my breath? The meal came and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, do you know pat a cake? boy, you know peekaboo? Look, he knows peekaboo. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was probably drunk and a definite disturbance. I was embarrassed. My husband was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence, except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of his skid row bum. Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised, waiting his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me out of here before he speaks to me or Eric, and I headed to the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him. And as I did so, Eric, all the while his eyes riveted on his new best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in the baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The old bum's eyes asked, implored, would you, would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my <laughs> arms into the man's. Suddenly a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder, and the man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath the lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, 
And then his eyes opened and he sat squarely on mine, said in a firm, commanding voice, Now you take proper care of this baby. And somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he was in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks, and with Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, don't let me forget. Please don't let me forget. So what matters when the rains come or the tears or tragedy, that kind of darkness or the darkness of this season? It becomes a time to quiet your mind and listen to your heart, not avert your gaze, but to set your intention most deeply. What are you doing with this human life? to turn the compass of your heart to what really matters. That's what's called for. The bodhisattva vows are one way that people do it, to take a a vow in yourself. This is what I want to do with my life. Diane Ackerman, the modern bodhisattva vows that I love. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon, and the night when it departs. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. Or the Dalai Lama who wakes up in every morning, four in the morning, 3.30, says the same vows in a different form from Shantideva, May I be medicine for all who are sick. May I be a boat or a raft or a bridge for all to cross over the stream. May I be food for the hungry, a lamp for those who've lost their way in the darkness. May I be a resting place for the weary. May I bring inspiration and care and illumination as long as the world, earth and sky exist and longer until I and all beings awaken together. Some little vow like that, of those kind of things. But it actually works. Henry David Thoreau, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And there are the outer seeds that we plant. But this really speaks of the seeds in the heart. What do you plant? And what do you plant in the dark time of the year when everyone lights candles and waits for the earth to make its turning and the sun to again begin to re-illuminate the world? but it's the seeds of loving kindness. Ursula Le Guin, love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made new every morning for breakfast. 
And so you read the loving-kindness practice, and its instruction is omitting none. Sitting and opening the heart with loving-kindness toward oneself, one's loved ones, one's benefactor, one's community, one's family, one's friends, the beings and creatures around thick and thin, tall and short, young and old, north, south, east and west, with the sublime abiding of love directing this in every direction. And then adding compassion for the parents, the families, for all those who lost someone, who were frightened. I suppose this is really the lighting of the inner candle. Angelus Salasis, the Christian mystic, says, If in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then Christ will one again, will once again become born on this earth. So that's really where the manger lives. I'd like to end this evening's talk with this simple ritual of making blessing cords. Um, and then we'll take time, it'll take a little bit, then we'll take time for sharing of food and so forth. Um, Sean, you have uh, blessing cords. If you would just scatter clumps of them around the room, get a couple other people to help you. And when you get a little bundle of these red cords, take one and then pass it on to others who are seated around you. And while they get passed around, I'll explain about them for a little bit. This will just take five minutes and we'll do a little loving-kindness practice and then you can eat or walk or go to the bathroom or whatever you need to do. So across most of Asia, all the way from Afghanistan and through South and Southeast Asia and to East Asia, You don't have to give them out one at a time. You can give them a whole bunch and then have them pass others along. It'll be... Um, there is an understanding, a kind of symbolic understanding of the, of the cord or the thread as a symbol of the thread that connects all of life. And so uh, threads are used for healing ceremonies, for uh, sacred blessings, um, a, a Brahmin uh, priest in India will wear a white thread around their body for the whole of their adult life, symbolizing that they live within the thread of the sacred, the, the warp and weft of, of the divine woven through everything that exists. And the reason that these are colored this red color for anybody who wants, take one. If you don't want, it's okay. Here, this is all optional. But you can make one, and if you're desperate, you can take two. Um, uh, the reason that they're colored red, who doesn't have, by the way? Raise your hand if you don't have. Okay, we're good. There are a few in that corner that way, so send some in that far corner. It'll get there. Um, the reason it's colored red is it's considered one thread from the robe of a monk or a nun. This is one of the colors of the robes of monks in Burma or Tibet, nuns. Um, which means that when you wear it, if you do, 
It's like your robes. You're leaving the temple and going into the marketplace. You're basically a monk or a nun in drag. You know, wearing your robes, you know where you live, but other people don't necessarily know that. So it's a way of carrying that. This one I got from the Dalai Lama, and it's kind of industrial strength. I've had it for like five years. It's great. Anyway. Um, they're also called protection cords. And as I like to say when we do these, um, I did this blessing protection cord ceremony with together with Chogyam Trumpa 30 years ago or so we were teaching together and um, somebody asked, what exactly do they protect you from? And he said, why yourself, of course. <laughs> the main protection that we need as human beings. So, so to activate your blessing or protection cord, um, we're going to have to do uh, a little practice and tie sequentially three knots in the cord. Um, the first knot that you'll tie in the cord is called the knot of refuge. And in the Buddhist traditional way, it's to take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. Don't tie it yet, by the way. Wait for a second. Um, slow down. Take a breath. <sighs> the first knot, knot of refuge. Refuge in Buddha means to see the Buddha in every being you meet. To see the awakened heart in every being you meet behind those eyes and to see the possibility of awakening. Refuge in the Dharma, Dharma means the truth or the way, like the Tao, and the practices that lead to awakening. So it's to see what's true, to speak what's true, to awaken to what's true. Refuge in Sangha is refuge in the interconnectedness of all awakening together in community. The fact that you can't do this by yourself, and that every moment of compassion or loving-kindness that grows in you affects your children or your parents or your family or community or the people that you drive on the freeway with and the people that they touch and it ripples out and goes all the way to the ends of the universe because you are woven into the universe and we do this together. Um, but for others of you, refuge might be in that which is holy or sacred by some other name. All names are allowed. So hold your cord and reflect on going through the winter solstice, the time of the longest night, and lighting the candle really in the heart, the reminder of what matters, especially in difficult times. And what is the refuge that you want to remember and have as your ground? That which is sacred or holy that you never want to forget. And when you're ready, tie a knot in the center of the cord that is a reminder of this refuge. Then the second knot in this cord is the knot of compassion. 
it's taught in the beginning most simply that one makes the intention or vow to refrain from harming living beings, to refrain from killing or more importantly to cultivate a reverence for life, to refrain from stealing, more importantly to cultivate a care with the things that we're given, to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants, the misuse of sexuality, just because they can cause tremendous harm to yourself or to others. I always ask how many people in the room have made idiots of themselves in their sex lives. Don't raise your hand. We already know. <laughs> right? And intoxicants, you know, 20 million alcoholics, 10 million drug addicts, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, the majority of child abuse, not a small thing. So to turn yourself toward compassion to, for yourself and others is first to refrain from causing harm. That's the first step of compassion with your words and your deeds. Not cause harm to yourself or others, but to live with a spirit of compassion and care for yourself and the beings you touch. So holding your cord again, reflect on what the intention of compassion, your practice, really means to your own heart. And tie a second knot in the center of the cord. Almost finished. So the third knot, like those beautiful vows that I read of Shanti David Dalai Lama's vows of may I be a bridge to cross the flood, may I be food for the hungry and medicine for the sick, or Diane Ackerman's beautiful poem. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. Let yourself reflect on what is the most important and beautiful intention of your heart. If you were setting the compass of your heart to true north, What gives voice to that intention? <coughs> and as if lighting a candle in the darkest night of the year, set your intention and tie the third knot in the cord.
And now your blessing protection cords are fully activated. And if you would like to wear them, which people do for even a little while or longer, if you want to wear them around your neck, you can put them around the back of your neck, leave the two ends hanging down. We're going to have somebody else tie them on you. If you want to wear them around your wrist, you can wrap them three times around your wrist and leave the ends hanging down. You can also stick them in your pocket or whatever. But if you'd like to wear it, even for a bit. And then I'd like us to do a very simple chant um, and turn toward one another and tie on the blessing cords and offer your blessing to the person near you. And the chant is this. When we get, not yet, hold on a second. <clears throat> You're all in such a hurry, you know. I can't tell you how bored, boring it was to live in a Buddhist monastery. It's like one of the most boring places on the face of the earth. And they did it deliberately, and then you'd be waiting, and they'd see you get a little nudgy, and they'd make you wait longer. You know, like, okay, deal with it, dude. You know. Anyway, so um, the chant is this. In India, when you meet someone... You put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see the spark of the sacred behind your eyes. And the root of that word namaste is in Sanskrit is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects to. It's the beginning of a lot of the great Buddhist texts as well. Um, and so what I'd like us to do is just to sing or chant Namo, which is to offer respects repeatedly. And as we sing, then you can turn to a person near you and tie their cord on and offer your blessing as you do. Not too tight, not too loose, middle path kind of thing with this, right? Um, so let's begin. We'll just start to sing Namo for a bit before you turn. Na mo na mo na mo add harmony na Singing in turn now. Na mo. Two or three can do it. Na mo. Na mo. Na.
Blessing one another. And as you sit quietly, let your eyes close. Bring your attention to the area of the heart. And sense your human life, this human incarnation, this mystery of life you've been given. And what's the best that you can offer to this world? Your creativity, your care, your vision your energy, your healing, your tending, your dance and song. And may it all be offered with loving kindness, with a spirit of care first for yourself. So feel some loving kindness for yourself. With each breath, may I be well and safe, protected in this year ahead. You know, if you're out in the street and you step into the road and a car comes careening around the corner, you jump back immediately to protect yourself, as you should, this precious life. May I be safe. May I be protected. May I be well and healthy. May I be filled with loving kindness. for all I touch, for myself and all others. And with each breath feel a filling up of all of the body, the cells of your body with a spirit of kindness. Spirit of love. And think of someone you love a lot, how natural and easy it is with your heart open to wish them well. Picture them, may you too be filled with loving kindness. May you too have blessings of safety and health and well-being. Feel your compassion for them, for their struggles and pain, how you want to reach out and care for them. And bless them with your heart. And just as you open yourself to this loved one, realize that human beings are your family. Let your heart open to all the people seated around you who is somebody's son or daughter, very often someone's brother or sister, 
someone's father or mother. We're all in this together. And offer your loving kindness for everyone in this room. May you too be filled with loving kindness, all those around. May you be safe from dangers. May you be healed. Open your eyes and look around. You don't have to just do it closed eyes. See your fellow humans. May you be well, everyone. May you be strong and healthy. May you live with great love and deep compassion for all the struggles of your life and those around you. Wish them well. You can do this, you know, in traffic and on the on BART and things. You don't have to look weird, but you can do it. It's really a sweet thing to do, you know. And then think about all these people who are going out who can bless and offer their love as they go through the traffic and back to work and back to their families and how over here, across, you know, around the Bay Area and across the country and around the world and, and also include all the other beings, not just the humans but the fishes in the water and the birds of the air and the creatures of the forests. Life that all wants to live and that you can be a carrier of love. This is possible for you. You can be a carrier of compassion. Even in tragedy, someone has to not avert their gaze and hold the tragedy with the great heart of compassion for all mothers, all fathers, all children. It's hard being human. It's hard to be human. It's also a beautiful thing to do, to bring your whole humanity. Boundless, says the Buddha, upward to the sky, downward to the earth, north, south, and east, west, abounding every quarter of the world and every being and every form offering the well-wishing of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and peace. And especially put in your hearts the families of children who are in danger, who have died or are lost, or struggling and suffering, this great compassion for all that we carry as humans. And back to your own vows of how you will deport yourself in this mysterious and wonderful new year that no one has ever lived through before. You get to be the architect of your life in this new year. May it be filled with blessings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.